Greetings, Quester, and welcome to the Meddlesome Meeples. Grab an ale, sheathe your axe, and join us fireside. Here's your host, Matt Williams, with Richard and Heather. Welcome to this episode of the Meddlesome Meeples. I'm Matt. I'm Richard. I'm Heather. So, Richard, what games are we talking about this week? We are going to be talking about Biblios, and also... Multi-universum, which I have to read to get it right. It's not a difficult one to say, but it's one you have to think about just before you say it. Yeah, there's so many variants <laughs> that it could be. That's a trouble. Yeah. When I picked it up, I looked at it and thought, oh, it's multi-universum. Oh. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. No, it's multi-universum. It still doesn't make sense, but it's... it is correct. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can see what they were going for, multi-universes. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, with an <laughs> M, U-M at the end. Okay. <laughs> okay, so that's what we're going to be talking about in our board game section. Heather. Uh, we're talking about music. Yeah, we're going to be talking in the... <laughs> bar- the same thing we do every week. <laughs> Didn't you record it like a few minutes ago? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thought you might remember the bands or something. Yeah. Doing the same yep, thing this week. <laughs> in this week's uh, Medicine Meeples on our music section, Heather and I are going to be talking about uh, new albums from Saxon, Da Vinci, Lionheart, Warner Drive... Quite a few this week. And Mr. Bick. Their new album coming out next month. Mm-hmm. Also, Richard's going to be talking about one of his recent reads. Yep. Dan, Dan Simmons's book, Hyperion. Hyperion. Hyperion, yep. And also, we are going to be bringing another big issue to the fore in Tiny Meeple's Big Talk. And we're going to be talking about Stargate SG-1 and alternative yep. uses for the Stargate. Oh, and also, cool. just stuff O'Neill did. Well, it was kind of started off with stuff O'Neill did. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of it was going to be kind of O'Neill's best moments, and then we just ended up talking about all the characters and just generally didn't. He yeah. just have the best catchphrases in like really bad situations. Yeah, he which is, is what you need sometimes. Yeah. O'Neill is pretty great, so mm, yeah. that's going to be our show. We hope you enjoy that as we get to it. Mm. What's everyone been doing this week? Um, I've been on Riser quite a lot. <laughs> Um, just because it's okay. summer and <laughs> <laughs> it's the Lodonat Festival, so yeah, that's on um, on Star Trek Online, by the way. But um, it's I, I always like it when it's that. Be there and be square. Yeah, cool. I'm, I'm just thinking, what did I do this week? Yeah, we went on a road trip, didn't we? We went to fetch your sister from Wales. Yeah, that, that was, was fun. fun. And uh, I've released a new book again. This one's quite boring. <laughs> advertising every all week. <laughs> An introduction to teaching and assessment for anyone who cares. Not that anybody cares about my life. I sure don't. No. (laughs) People are just here for the meeples. Mm -hmm. So let's get on with the show. (laughs) Okay. It's over there. So we thought we'd uh, talk about one of the games that we picked up at the Expo. We played Mm -hmm. at the Expo this week. And that's a game called Biblios. Now, Biblios is a game, it's a short game, only about... 20-30 20-30 minutes long yeah. for two to four players and the objective of this is to be the one with the best um, documents the best sort of monastery library yeah by the one you mean the monk who yeah. has the best library. because each each player is the head of a monastery trying to get the best and the rarest documents so the way that you do that is by collecting documents from five different categories and they're just essentially colour coded they are different kinds of texts and things but yeah. effectively 
all you're looking at here is the colours on the cards mm. and the number on the cards to represent the card they value. They do have general themes, don't they? They like, do. The orange ones are kind of like scrolls. Yeah. I mean, I quite mm. like the theme, but I think some people might find it off-putting. But it's kind of irrelevant because the game itself is so... It's it's themed, but it's not thematic. All oh. you're doing is you're trying to get the best hand of cards. But the what, artwork's very nice, though, isn't it? It is it is nice, and I like the way that the box is like a little book that you open. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I quite like that. There's a couple of games like that, and I always, always like that sort of thing. And um, so basically, during the game, on your turn, you're going to be drawing some cards, aren't you, from a deck? Yep. You're going to be drawing, say you're playing four players, five cards. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was three players, it would be four cards. And what you do is you have to, you pick one of those cards to keep yourself. You put one into an auction pile for later. Yeah. And the other three you put, you'd put face out for the other three players to take. But you can only draw and look at a card one at a time. And you have to look and decide what you're going to do with it as you draw it and look at it. So you mm-hmm. might draw a card and think, you know, this one looks okay. But I don't know if there's going to be a better card to come later, or yeah. if there's a worse card to come. So it's kind of it's like half like drafting mm. in a way, but you get to decide. You kind of get dibs on one of them, don't you? Yeah, basically, but only one. Yeah, and you can't when you've, you've drawn all five. You can't then go. Actually, I want to change this around. You've, no. you've got to put one away to the auction pile. You've got to take one, and you've got to put three out, all done one at a time. And that's actually probably the most interesting part of the game for me. Yeah, I liked that. Yeah, you kind of going mm. around the table doing that. And once the decks ran out, um, you're then going to be going through the auction pile mm. one card at a time, aren't you? And then you can bid. Now, there are other text and document cards, which are the five categories we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So, brown, blue, green, ochre, and red. But then there are also gold cards in values of one, two, or three. So, yeah. during the auction phase, what As you're doing. Money gold. Yeah, money gold. Yeah. So, during the auction phase what you're then going to do is you're going to be revealing a card one at a time and you're going to bid on that card and if it's a document card you're going to bid on it using gold from the cards you've got yeah and if it's a um, gold card you're going to bid on it using cards which we typically put in face down don't you so other people don't see but if it say you bid four on a gold card you'd be discarding four cards which would be they could be other gold cards they could be document cards face down aren't they so yeah. you don't have to reveal what you give away yeah. just it's just numbers of cards really but one of the cards that you'll be drawing and you, you play it as soon as you acquire it is to is like a bishop type card isn't it and what that <laughs> yeah. does is it means... shouting normally from a <laughs> yeah. pulpit and um that allows you to modify because there's five dice one for each color and they all start off at three and with those bishop cards you can either raise the value of a dice by one deduct the value of a dice by one but then there's a few cards that will let you raise two cards by one or one by two or raise um, one and, and deduct one and that kind of thing yeah and they're quite interesting so the values of the sets that you've got will change at the end the person that's got the most value in the cards will score the va- the number that's on the dice basically this is the score that you are playing for mm. in each category and I just I quite like these dice they're quite big and like I say, they're all in the different colours. Mm. When I first saw this, I assumed that we would be rolling these die, dice. It's just nice to have dice that we're not rolling. And yeah. they are proper, they're just normal D6s. But we are just using them to indicate a number, aren't we? Mm. And you just turn them around to kind of, like, if it's a, it starts out as a mm. three, and if you get one to raise a number, then you just turn it around and find the four and then put it back down. 
So basically, if you are trying to collect um, the cards, like books from a certain colour, then it's in your interest to try and raise that particular mm. dice die. And, and like, when maybe we first lower played the it, ones that you're not collecting as well to yeah, make them less valuable. I thought it was interesting when we first played it. You really bluffed us, didn't you? Because <laughs> you kept raising green, and we thought, oh, you've got loads of green. But he was actually just trying to distract us, and you were it worked the bluff worked but it did nothing to help you win <laughs> i'd successfully achieved my aim of trying to trick everybody to think i was collecting uh, green and i think actually yeah. i was collecting uh, red and blue or something yeah. like that um but everyone was then trying to spend their dice to lower the green and yeah, that's what that's what i was trying to do so, so that somebody else were... won green in the end yeah. and they got loads of points yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, 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 yeah, I didn't win. Kind of <laughs> yeah, but like, I love the way there's more to do in a game than just out and out try to win. There's just mm. little cool little ways you can trick people and stuff. And I thought that was really. And good. what was interesting as well, because obviously the, the there's different values on the cards, but um, there were ones that people just weren't bothering to go for particularly. So like somebody yeah. won several points from just having like a couple of brown cards that they hadn't really been trying to collect. Oh yeah, you can win with one with. card mm. of uh, of that color. If nobody else has got any, because some of them there isn't many of, is yeah. there? And which There's way does it go? Amounts. Is it the brown and blue? There wasn't many of. Or I can was tell it? you. Um, it's oh, on, it says it on it's there. Got a, you oh, we don't need all the numbers. The just box. which one doesn't have many? Um, I think it's red, isn't it? Red's got the least. Red's got a lot of low-value cards. Yeah, that might be it. Whereas the brown and the blues tend to have more higher-value numbers. Um, now, when you are playing a game... You're going to discard some of these cards yeah, now randomly. Some, yeah, some of these cards are randomly not going to be there. So you can't just look at the number of books that exist yeah. and think, oh, well, I've got several of these, so there's going to be no more. It's like, <laughs> there could be no more, or mm. there could be a, a lot more. You, you just don't know which ones have been left in the box mm. for that particular game. So that adds a nice little uh, unpredictable element to it there. The other thing I like about it is the auction phase, as you as you were talking about, where you mm. use gold cards to buy the leftover books, basically. I like the fact that when a gold card turns up in that phase, you are using cards to buy the gold. Mm. So it's basically, it's both buying and selling books, in a way. Well, it's and, kind and of I know it doesn't have to be books, but yeah. Because for me, when I've played, because we've played this a few times now, and in mm. some of the games I've played, it completely changed my strategy during the auction phase. Mm. Because I thought, okay, well, I've got maybe a good hard card in uh, blue, for, for example. But then I saw other people outbidding me on blue and thought, well, I can't afford to spend any more. Yeah. And now I'm probably not going to... Ha- these aren't going to be as valuable to me because I'm sure someone else has got more. Right, and then I've yeah. traded them into gold for gold to try and buy another colour. Yeah. To improve my chances with something else. So the, the auction phase can change what you're doing, and that you know I like that kind of thing in a game. Mm. Um, I as just as we said, I like the uh, the the theme of it because I like old documents. Um, yeah. I like the the way that the the box represents a book. The cards are quite nice. It's just a nice light twenty to thirty minute game for me that yeah. I could probably pull out and play quite happily any time. Yeah, I mean it was our friend uh, Ryan who mm. bought this at the expo, and then one of the evenings we're not quite late, hadn't we? That <laughs> night, and we um... we were playing in the hotel bar at midnight, I think, and we yeah, we we've been to get this out. hanging around in the room, hadn't we? And then we just went down to the bar and. Uh, yeah, and Ryan just explained to us how to play Biblios, and 
it, it didn't take too long, did it? And it was no. just nice to play just at that bar table. So mm. it's a nice game that, like, it's a little bit counterintuitive to learn at first, I think. But after a few rounds, people get to know it. But then people need to know how to do the kind of half drafting, half uh, just choosing cards bit mm. at the start. And then they need to learn again for the auction bit, mm. which um, is very different again. But I think by the time you've played it once, then you have a oh, yeah. very good grasp of how to do it. You only ever need to know this once to know basically all there is to know about yeah. the game. And then after that, it's just deciding which sets you're going to try and go for. Um, trying to work out when you're drawing those cards, which ones you think are going to be good to keep, which ones not. I mean, sometimes it's you just keep the one that you think, well, this isn't a bad card. Yeah. Because you don't if you could put it down, someone else could get it and you could end mm. up with a bit of a dud later. But it's kind of like a, a push your luck style element in that mechanic yeah. so that you don't know if if you take if you pass up on a half decent card you might get a better one later and I've done that and I've ended up getting a really good card that's mm. really helped me later on in the game yeah but then other times I've done that and I've ended up with like a gold of one or something like that and yeah it's, it's not was, always a, a big help yeah there were some times when I was waiting to until the last card of the mm. five that I was going to draw and that was going to be the one I was going to keep, because then you've got no choice at mm. that point. But and then it was like a a blue four or something, yeah. and I thought, oh great, glad they did that. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, ov overall, what what was your final thoughts on this game, Richard? I think it's a very nice small game. Um, I think a lot of people would play it. Mm. I think sometimes it's a little bit like a Euro game, but not quite. There's no like fighting or anything. There's not really mm. anything that family members might object to if you got it out. Very family friendly, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, that's what I kind of think. So I think it's a nice, safe game that you could um, bring out in a variety of circumstances. Like if you had people round, it doesn't really matter um, who they are. I think they would they would at least play it yeah and um they would most probably enjoy it and how many players is it two to four two to four yeah i think i think that's a nice number as well i mean obviously there are some light games that include more players mm. but i think if you if you did have four people then i don't think there's going to be many circumstances where people wouldn't do this I mean, you're going to have time and people are going to have the inclination i think and I do, as I say, I think it, it looks nice. Um, the cards, the artwork and everything is all very nice. And I like the theme of it. I know some people haven't particularly liked the theme, but I think that people have rethemed the game. <laughs> so I think there's a, a version, I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it, a version that someone made where instead of like having the monasteries and the old documents, you are a comic book store and you're trying to get the rare comic books. Right. And I would definitely prefer this, but yeah, I can see. I think might like I would. That. I think I would like the other one, but actually, I'm quite happy with this the way it is. I quite <laughs> like it because this, to me, is quite unique. It's not I, off the top of my head. I couldn't really think of another game um, in this same mold. I mean, the only one that comes close, and it's again because it's to do with documents and books, is Paperback, and that as a game is completely different to this. It's just like well, it's just mildly connected by. By a theme, and there's just not yeah, there's just not many games out there that are about books and old documents, and you know 
boring old me, I do like those things. So this is something that, for me, I'm quite pleased to have. I mean, we played it, as you said, with Ryan on the Saturday on the Saturday evening Simon, at the hotel yeah. and, and Whittam and on the Sunday we were look, going around looking for a copy at the expo yes and that's where we then picked up from the same store that had this because uh, we went to several stores and they didn't have it we found it <laughs> I thought it was funny that you were going around trying to find Biblios when uh, <laughs> before people weren't buying it so much yeah and then it um, became popular it's, yeah so, somehow it became popular um, yeah. it was bar night gaming that made it popular um but then we also found another game which we'll be talking about um on our next segment of the quest report multi-universum yes from the same store we did a quest of universum as well so we have to talk about that so multi-universum sorry so we um, hope you enjoyed this. Definitely want to check out Biblios, a light, family-friendly game. Um, we enjoyed it. We hope you do too. Yeah, save the books. Multi-universum. And that is, it's again quite a small game. We were talking about Biblios a little bit earlier. And this one is... I would say it's not quite as light as that. You need no. a little bit more table to play it. And it has a few more... I don't think it has more components, actually. It's just a lot of cards. And instead of having dice, you've got meeples. There's us. And we always like meeples. <laughs> yeah. So these meeples are your scientists. And you also have five cards, which represent transformers. And these are these massive things with lightning coming out of them. Yep. The artwork on this is very great as well. And you basically put these round in a circle. And these are the things that generate portals into another reality. Mm. And the other cards that you have are basically other realities. And these are pretty weird. Some of the artwork on these is beautiful, though. I mean, there's like it is. Um, one with a alien killer, what looks like a gummy bear. Yeah, alien killer um, gummy bear with a big knife covered in blood. There's a, a robot, robot dinosaur. Robot dinosaur. And... There is a volcano with a face. So basically, if you were thinking of opening portals into other realities, like infinite universes, this is the kind of stuff you would have to expect. Yeah. <laughs> They basically started with the weird universes first, haven't All they? All kinds of craziness. And, but the artwork on these cards is amazing. Because, I mean, there's other cards that look fairly standard, like the action cards. Well, these are, are just, just symbols of stuff you can do, basically. Yeah. And the um, Transformer cards and the Lab cards, uh, they're basically the same image on each one, except that the colour's yeah, different. So that, yeah. um, the co- Corresponds to each meeple scientist. Yeah. But <clears throat> this is a really interesting game. It's all—it's kind of reminded me of Love, a Lovecraftian-style game in the sense that you're trying to yeah. close these portals. Not quite so Victorian, is that? No, it's uh, more futuristic. Mm. And, of course, your, um, your Transformers generate the areas that you're going to be moving around during the game. Well, yeah, the Transformers are places you can go, aren't they? Mm. Um, you use action cards to do that. Yep. And then you use action cards to take an action yeah. which are there. There are several actions. It's pretty weird. You have to have an action card where the symbol of what you want to do is on the right colour. Yeah. And that is the bit that's difficult to keep track of, I yeah. found. 
because uh, when you go to a place, the only possible actions that are there, apart from you can just discard a card and take a new card from the top of which the action card action. stack, yeah. which counts as one of your actions. Um, everything else, you have to have the... Uh, you can only use the symbols that are in the right place on, on the cards you've got, uh, which made it interesting. It meant that I was having to think a lot about what my next action was going to be, because uh, ultimately your objective in this game is to move around and close these portals. Now there's 20 yeah. portal cards in the game, and you divide, you assign four to each of the five transformers. So basically, um, each one keeps changing to different places, doesn't it? Yeah, because some of the actions that you can take will allow you to literally take a stack of the portal cards from one transformer and move them over to another transformer. So things can change yeah, a fit. But even that, when you when you when you close one. Like there's another one right yeah. underneath it, so it's like opens to a different place. I and think then that's pretty cool. you can also alter that. It's almost like you're reprogramming the portal machine because yeah. you can you can reorder uh, certain places allow you to reorder the stack of them there. So that if you think, oh, well, I really want to do that mission, but it's further down, you can then bring that back to the top and close that portal. Yeah, it did feel like that yeah. to me as well. It felt like there were portals going to a different place because these cards you probably can't quite see them but Matt will probably put a picture up but they've got um, the border of them is kind of like hazy isn't it it is mm. like you're viewing yeah. viewing that through a portal <clears throat> so. and you are ultimately you're trying to close these portals and you score points for closing portals now each portal card will have a value in the top left hand corner mm. that tells you how many points that portal is worth at the end of the game but there are also sets so you can get like an omni set which is where you make a set of uh, five different portal symbols, which yeah. are in the bottom left-hand corner. So they're different and to the get, points, aren't they? Yeah, they're separate to the points, but they give you points at the end of the game. Because if you've got five separate ones, then you get like an om it's called an omni set, and you get nine points yeah. for each of the sets that you can make with five different ones. But oh. there's also a specialist set which you can do for having uh, you get points for having two or more portals with the same portal symbol. Yeah. at the bottom so, and you get points for that as well so there's different ways of getting bonuses at the, the end I you can think... also get points deducted at the end because one of the things that oh, you yeah. can do as an action if you've got leftover tools yeah. isn't it because you dealt three action cards at the beginning of the game and you will acquire more cards through either through actions um, during your turn or at the end of your turn if you've got less than three action cards in hand you draw back up to three one of the things you can do with these as well as the action symbols they have a tool symbol now the, to close a portal down you need to be at the right a transformer use the closing portal symbol which is like a little shimmery wormhole isn't it on the, yeah, on the action the card thing, you were calling it. we called it a swirly yeah and then you have to spend the tools that are under your lab card that, that have correspond to the same uh, symbols on that portal so card so for the gummy bear one you'd need one of the like nuclear symbol and one of the microscope. Yeah. So on the action cards, you'll have those symbols, but what you have to do is you uh, can t you use one of those cards as a tool by putting it under your lab. So you've got a tool ready to use, and then you spend that from your lab to close the portals. So it's fairly simple, fairly straightforward. But it's sometimes it's a case of trying to find the right cards to do that. Mm. A to move, B to have the portal. Uh, action it's card a lot of work. and then the tools <clears throat> so you're kind of having to think a lot about your um, upcoming round you have to work round. hard for your Nobel Prize yeah because uh, the person that gets the most points at the end wins the game and gets a Nobel Prize but one of the things you can do is take a recycling action uh, which is the recycling symbol on the action card and with that you are discarding a card as an action 
but then you get to go through the discard pile and take any card you want. So you can look and think, right, well, I need this symbol or I need that symbol. Yeah, that was um, a useful one. That. that was a very useful action. I was doing, having to do that a lot so that I could get what I need to then go and do what I want. So yeah. it's it's a an, it's a short game, mm -hmm. uh, probably thirty minutes to forty minutes with three players. How many did it's take fair. us? It was About thirty-five, yeah, forty. Yeah, it was three player. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was three player, and I think that's a f probably a, a fairly decent time. I think once we know better what we're doing, we'll get it down to probably about thirty minutes. Players one to five. That, yeah, that's you, quite good. You can do it solo. You can do it solo. That's a very good, good element. We haven't tried it solo yet. Um, well, but you could do that at any time. <laughs> yeah, I, I will be playing that solo because I quite enjoyed this game. Um, and as I say, the the scoring of it at the end is fairly simple. The mechanics of it are fairly simple. The only thing that was catching us out was some of the symbols. We were having to think, okay, what does this symbol on the transformer do? Well, we just had the transformers the... have their own abilities that you can use. Yeah. As well as the cards you've got in your hand, you can play an action card that allows you to use the transformer ability. Mm -hmm. And so that we were having to uh, keep thinking, okay, what does this symbol mean? But by the end of the game, we we knew what we were doing. So next time we play that, we'll we'll be able to shave the time down. Um, but I really enjoyed the game. Mm -hmm. And as I say, any you got to think as well about what tools you've got because you can't just get to the end of your your um, turn and go, well, actually. Uh, I've got these cards. I'll just dis put the use this as a tool, and then just refill my hand because if yeah. you end up with a load of tool cards that are going to cost you points at the end of the game. Yeah. Um. So you there is there is strategy in this. Yeah. Um. And it's always nice to be able to move a meeple around the board. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I I enjoyed this game. This is going in my travel bag when we go away next as uh, to to play around the the pub table again. Yeah, we do need those kind of games. <laughs> <laughs> so this is one that I would I would personally recommend. Richard, what are your final thoughts? Um, I like the artwork a lot more than I like the actual game. Um, but it is fun mm. to do. Um, I just think it might be a little bit overcomplicated, kind of for what you're actually doing. But we'll mm. have to see in subsequent games, kind of, if that does get a little bit easier. I think it's one of those ones that's very difficult to think ahead with. Um, I, I do suppose like... because other players' actions can change what your options are they as can, well, can't they? Yeah, and it's also... It's just... I didn't quite understand about the um, the sets like you were talking about. So you have the points symbol, so that's how much data you actually get from closing that portal. But then... You have the symbol, like it could be a leaf or a diamond or some bacteria or an asteroid or a tentacle, yeah. and those are like suits basically. Yeah, so you I've, put those together. I don't think that's in with the keeping of the theme of the game because everything mm. you know, the pictures on there they're nice, but they don't actually relate to the game at all. It's just a, the place Not you so much. Down. I mean, I and neither I... do the symbols. They don't when you look at the sets, they don't seem to relate one portal to another. Not really. It's so just it's a, a way bit, of, of scoring, isn't it? A little bit hard to keep track of things like that. But I do like a game that's got a strong theme, and this really does. Um, I think if the artwork had been cartoony or something, then I really wouldn't like this game. Mm. But because it does look like it's got a lot of depth and a lot of imagination, mm. and you can get a little bit immersed in it for saying it's such a small game. Mm. Um, I like that aspect of it. And it is one that I do like, but 
out of the two that the two small games that we got and that we talked about today, um, I think I would prefer Biblios. Um, just just for kind of what they are, mm. and we're just talking about games that we kind of take places. But yeah, no, I did really enjoy this one. Um, but it's mostly for me, it was just how beautiful all the artwork is and, and how it, imaginative it is. It is a really beautiful game to look at, and the yeah, and the um, there's the expansion for this is, as you can probably have guessed, with it being a a game about closing portals, there's a Cthulhu expansion for this. <gasps> A Lovecraftian expansion, which we haven't got yet, but it is on order, so I'm sure we'll probably be talking about that one at a at a later time. Yeah, yeah, we, we can see kind of not only what the expansion's like, but what it's like to play this mm. once you're really used to it. So, yeah. And I think the main thing with the difference with that expansion is the fact, I mean, I haven't looked through it yet because it's not arrived yet, but from what I can gather, the portals are just Lovecraftian themed, mm-hmm. but you get, when you close a portal... There is a sanity penalty. They're always so. Yeah. People went insane a lot back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking forward to trying that out. But yeah, I mean, obviously, we, myself and Richard, both got different views on the game, but we both both enjoyed playing mm. it. Uh, I personally yeah. highly recommend it. Um, there are some of the pictures I possibly wouldn't want to play this with a child. For example, <laughs> there's one yeah. that's a, a, quite a high value one that looks like a bit Lovecraftian, but you've got like a, a decapitated living hand with an eye in it. And uh, for example, I wouldn't necessarily want to play that with my eight year old. There's lots of eyes where there should not be eyes in yeah. this game. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for me and Richard, or me and me and the lads, me and Heather, I, we quite probably will, will like that and, and appreciate the art, but I wouldn't play it with kids but there are again even some sci-fi bases some beautiful uh, artwork it's not all horror mm-hmm. but all of these portals do need to go <laughs> and yeah. so do we so thank you for joining us i personally am recommending multi-universum as a great little game uh, and the fact it has solo play i think will endear it to more more people too mm-hmm. hi welcome to the bard's corner uh, we've got a few things to go through this week. A lot of things. First off, we're going to talk about some upcoming releases that have just been announced. So first off, uh, it's kind of a blast from the past episode this week, because mm-hmm. a lot of these bands are either old bands or returning bands. So first off, we've got Saxon. They have just announced a new box set called The Solid Book of Rock. Now, this is <laughs> going to... sounds funny. <laughs> <laughs> the Solid Book of Rock is uh, going to contain all of the studio albums released between 1991 and 2009 plus there's going to be bonus tracks as well that's out on the 4th of august now the albums that are going to comprise this box set is solid ball of rock forever free dogs of war unleash the beast metalhead killing ground lionheart the inner sanctum and into the labyrinth so altogether this set is going to comprise 11 cds plus three DVDs, and that's going to be out in a like a 12 by 12 uh, book, as opposed to a typical box set. That sounds pretty cool. So yeah, that sounds like it'll be pretty good. So that's going to be out, as I say, on the uh, 4th of August. Then a band from Norway have returned, Da Vinci. They've got an album coming out called Ambitious, Ambition Rocks. Yeah, I've not heard of them after that. Yeah, these are an older band. Uh, it's the first album they've released in about 25 years. You're reminding me of my youth. I'm five years younger than you, dude. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a very formative five years musically for me. 
so yeah, Ambitious Rocks is the first album in 25 years. Their previous albums was the self-titled album Da Vinci and also Back in the Business. Uh, they split up in 1993, but they're bringing out this album through <sighs> AOR Heaven on August the 25th. Now, I've not had a chance to listen to the full album. I've had what I call a preliminary listen uh, prior to doing the main review. So listen to about half the album like, that way. Uh, there is some um, pretty good songs on there. It sounds like it's a pretty good album. Very much a re- return to form to their early albums. If you've, if you're familiar with those. If not, that was four. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not familiar with their uh, early work, then think TNT and Stage Dolls, and you'll be in the right ballpark. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as well as that, another blast from the past, Lionheart. Yay. Second Nature. Now, uh, they were around between. I think in 81 they first appeared uh, started to disappear around about 86 so they were around for a few years during those that time they played support to bands like um, Whitesnake and Def Leppard mm-hmm. a British rock band they reunited in 2016 this was uh, they were asked to play Rockingham uh, in Nottingham with uh, by David Herron the promote, promoter and he managed to get pretty much the original lineup That's cool. uh, minus Chad Brown who'd been the lead singer but the fortune favors the bold and they got a new singer Lee Small now Lee Small uh, had quite a stint with Shy he played uh, as their lead singer from 2006 to t- 2013 and they experienced quite a bit of success some cool. people name some of those albums as amongst their best work this was when Tony Mills had left shy so it might be a good thing well i i like lee small i've got some of those shy albums and Mm. he's a good singer so lionheart a very talented band uh they consist of current and former members of iron maiden ufo msg the michael schenker group and shy in fact um yeah in fact back in the heyday sounds magazine described them as the first new wave of british heavy metal super group so they've got quite a good pedigree Yep. Israeli prog metal group, uh, Soul Enema, is a female-fronted project. <laughs> Sorry, um, that sounds really funny. <laughs> Soul Enema. Yeah. <laughs> That's tickled you, hasn't it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm a bit juvenile. <laughs> well, they've got a new album out of Clans and Clones and Clowns. <laughs> and Enema. Soul Enema of Clans <laughs> and Clones and Out. And you've got me going now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Soul Enema of Clans and Clones and Clowns. A little bit of a tongue twister for you today. Not colons. No, you say it. Go on. (laughs) Clans, clones, and clowns. Yep, clans, clones, and clowns. Well, it's of clans and clones and clowns, so yeah, we both got it wrong. Yeah, it's the of that Now, this album was actually out on the 23rd of June, so it will be out now. Uh, However, uh, they premiered the album by streaming it in conjunction with Progsphere, and you can still listen to the full album free. Uh, We'll add the link into the description so that you can check that out if you like so they've got some guest musicians on that album as well guest contributions now the biggest name there is Arjen Anthony Lucasen mm-hmm. best known for his work with Arion so very good very talented musician um, I love his Star One project that he did we were listening to some of that the other day in the car weren't we yes that's where I don't want to admit it but I recognised the name and I was like Arjen Anthony Lucasen uh, Star One I don't know why I was thinking of Floyd Rhapsody Anderson, Totally Russell Island, Damien Wilson, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very f- fantastic project, fantastic musician. He appears on that album. That's why, that's the reason that, that this album came up on my radar. So, 
Uh, I've not listened. I only listened to a couple of tracks off that, but it was interesting, mm-hmm. a bit unusual. We will add the link in so you can have a listen to for that yourself. Radar. All right. Um, couple of yeah, radar things cross my radar. Things cross my desk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we've got a couple of albums that we're going to talk to you about today. The first one was Warner Drive Till the Wheels Fall Off. Now that's out on the 28th of July through uh, Dead End Exit Records. It's their fourth album. This is the one you were listening to with me the other day. Fourth. <laughs> yep. So what did you think of that? I thought it was funny. You thought it was funny? I did. Sorry, yeah. that's very um, technical. No, I liked it. I, I did like it. It was really easy to listen to, but yeah. don't know if I don't it. <laughs> well, Warner Driver, an original group... Uh, from Hollywood. They've shared the stage with people like Rat, Steel Panther, Papa Roach and the Killers and they've been touring internationally for years so they've got themselves quite a reputation from from that touring base. Uh, it's basically, it's kind of like punk rock. Mm. Uh, best way I can describe it is probably Blink-182 and Bad News had a baby and they left it to be raised by Spinal Tap. <laughs> it was um, ugly. No, it was, <laughs> no, it was it was good. Um, I, I think if it was on, like, if you went to someone's house and it was on, you'd probably sit there and have a bit of a laugh and it was great, but I wouldn't, like, want to just put it on over and over again. It's, yeah, it, there's a few songs on there. Uh, the ones that particularly stood out to me was Don't Give Up, Karma's a Bitch, Anthem of the Douche, and Alley Psycho. A uh, couple of beers, it'd be hilarious. <laughs> it's There's a lot of humour in that album. It's, yeah. the, the guys writing it have got a good sense of humour. Probably not the best band out there, but that humour comes through and it does tend to make you smile when you're listening to the songs. Mm. Um, some of them particularly really made me laugh. I think um, it, it, it depends on your taste. I mean, we we like the Spinal Tap movie, didn't we? We did. Um, so if you like them, then you'll probably like it. But I personally wouldn't go out and buy this album. For me, for me and my personal collection. I, I've given this one a 6 out of 10. Um, the reason being, as I say, musically it's not great, the sense of humour comes mm. through, but that's why I go and see stand-up comedy. Yeah. You know, more than listen, what I want from a, a musical mm. album. As you said, if I went around someone's house and it was on, or if I was driving along and it was on, you know, mm. it'd be absolutely fine. Personally, I wouldn't put it on because there was... Uh, I tend to listen to a a lot of my music at home mm. and some of the language in the album I wouldn't want my kids to listen to because I know that they'd then repeat it <laughs> repeat those words around the grandparents so of course they would um, and as I say it's not that it's not a bad album but it's not one that made me think oh I no. need to own this so I'm not bothered about it's having just that funny um, <laughs> yeah. but as I say if you like Blink 182 Bad News and Spinal Tap this this album will probably yeah. get you drawling uh, what? Well, you know, this, if it's your sort of thing, then you probably quite like that. You know, just, I love this album. <laughs> I've had too much coffee. Some albums make me drool. Okay, so the next album we want to talk about is Mr. Big's Defying Gravity. That's out on the 21st of July through Frontiers Music SRL. Uh, Mr. Big are best known for the 91 album Lean Into It and 93 album Bump Ahead. They recorded this new album in just six days in LA. It's impressive. It is impressive. It uh, usually takes a lot longer to record an album like that, but um, these guys have been playing together for years mm. and they've, they've got their formula nailed down quite well. Uh, it is the original lineup plus Matt Starr. The reason Matt Starr's appearing on drums is because obviously Pat Torpe's got Parkinson's disease. Yeah. He couldn't play on every song, so Matt Starr filled in f- for him on the songs he couldn't do. But it's it's. I like the fact that they've they've not just gone okay well we don't need Pat Torpe because mm. he's ill they've brought someone in to help out but 
they've kept Pat as part of the band and I think that that probably speaks to the kind of uh, band they are the kind of chemistry a lot yeah. of very few bands are able to uh, stay together in those kind of circumstances the other situation that comes to mind is um, Def Leppard mm. having a one-armed dr- drummer rather than just getting someone else in this you know sticking together and I think that's a great thing but that's uh, going off topic anyway this album is a follow-up to 2014 the stories we could tell um, there are some good songs on that album yeah I liked it I quite liked uh, 1992 nothing at all damn I'm in love again and nothing bad about it feeling good mm. uh, it's got the album's got a good rhythm to it uh, quite bluesy at times yeah I have to um, I was in the other room at the time you're listening to it it's usually when I hear most of the songs um, and I thought it might at first it was thunder didn't I before I heard yeah, the vocals I that kind that. of rhythm um, but especially considering it was only six days in recording I mean that is really good yeah um, I'm personally I'm a big fan of Eric Martin yeah. I think he's a great singer um, I love some of the other um, bands he sang with some of his solo material as well so I'm always ready to listen to something that he mm. puts out but this one I did think was a pretty good album I think if you like um, Mr Big's earlier albums if you like modern blues rock then this is an album to check out I'm giving this one a, mm. a 7 out of 10 as we say that's out on the 21st of July through Frontiers Records yep. so that's the Bard's Corner for this week uh, if you want to know any more about anything we've been talking about uh, please check out paradiserock.co.uk uh, to keep up to date with more music news Tiny Meeple's Big Talk Hello and welcome to this episode of Tiny Meeple's Big Talk Big Talk Today, it's all about the Shapa Eye Shapa Eye The Stargate yeah. uh, We're going to be talking about the Stargate and of course Jack O'Neill Yeah, he's the main one we're going to talk about Because obviously when it got made as a TV programme He really did kind of carry the show a lot a much different take on the character oh, of, yeah, of Jack I, O'Neill in Stargate the film yeah. uh, obviously Jack O'Neill was played by Kurt Russell mm. and he was like the traditional stony faced soldier yeah um, and I mean but I really like Kurt his Russell. kid had just died it had yeah and um, then in the series it, a bit more time had gone past <laughs> he'd, yeah he'd uncovered his sense of humour again <laughs> yeah and uh, but yeah, very different takes on the on the same character. Mm. I mean, I say Kurt yeah. Russell is is a is a great actor. He's been in some really great films, mm. um, particularly The Thing was probably one of my favourite films that he's done. But um, I like to I like to Escape from New York. <laughs> the I Thing, like Escape from yeah, Escape from New York, excellent. Escape from LA, not so much. But Escape from New York and, and Snake was just brilliant. And it's the same guy and well, uh, same character. I mean, yeah, it's just the sequel wasn't as good. Yeah, it's, but it's not the character's fault. <laughs> <laughs> but very different takes obviously because then uh, Richard Dean Anderson mm-hmm. uh, came into it and went with MacGyvered a more it. yeah he MacGyvered it in a in a comedy way um, so yeah. you've still got the soldier but he's presented as probably being a little little bit more dim and less understanding as the Jack O'Neill in the film in a way but yeah. a lot more comedy but he also pretends to be less intelligent than he actually is that's he does. part of it as well I mean, like as far as tactics go, you can't really get much better in like perception and stuff like mm. that. He just will not learn facts, yeah. and it's almost intentional. <laughs> <laughs> he does not want to understand what Carter's saying. <laughs> there are, yeah, there are times where he's Carter's trying to explain to him, and he's just 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's the bottom line? What's it? Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and in, in a way, it's kind of almost a little bit of a surprise when you take that into the character that is he is the leader of like us first line of defense against yeah. alien invasion and he is but fascinated he does... by space as well yeah. and like he knows about the like accretion disk of black holes and stuff like that mm. it's just he doesn't kind of carry that interest on into anything else so yeah. much yeah um but as a character he's absolutely fantastic and like you say there's so many times where he carries the show because of his personality his mm. charisma i mean all the thing is the whole of sg1 are a great team that's good casting choices I think uh, so yeah they're well acted the stories that they get they they really explore those four characters over the course of the various series well it's, it's a great team really because mm. whatever situation they come up against there's bound to be one of them that's going to to know something it's very well kind of formulated because mm. obviously Tilk's a fighter so is Jack but Tilk also has like inside knowledge and like what mm, what gold. Jafar do and like what, what the Gould do and things like that uh, Daniel knows all of the um, linguistic the, the languages, archaeology the anthropology but also yeah the legends that's mm. what I was trying to go for so it's like Tilk knows yeah, he's lived the Jafar life mm. with them all but then Daniel has like a really good overview of all of them mm. basically and also he will um <laughs> he will beat them all over the head with morals or something. <laughs> yeah, and um, really, in, in in many ways, Daniel is the heart of the team, isn't he? But yeah, because he's the they go into different yeah. circumstances, and even I mean, Carter can, is probably more like that than any of the others in the team. But she's still got that military training to fall back on in times, in the sense of, well, I've got to be pragmatic about the situation. We haven't got time to help oh, these people. We've got to do this. She's but Daniel, a yeah, Daniel always comes through and makes the team care more yeah. and he's kind of he's like the conscience of that team probably more I think so, so than any yeah. others think... except when he's been made evil by overuse of a sarcophagus yeah but any of us can fall prey to that <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's nice and relaxing in there yeah. <laughs> and it makes you not need your circles of glass you know minor yeah. rectangles Daniel will always bring the emotional mm. argument to it and it's very similar to the original Star Trek mm. where Kirk would have to make the decision, but then Spock would give him the logical side, McCoy would give him the emotional side, mm. and then he has to kind of decide between that. And it's very much a little bit like that with um, with SG-1. I mean, Jack, he's got the very much just the military background, mm. basically. But the kind uh, of he stuff still that... does care when it comes to like things like oh, kids, he definitely, though, doesn't he? He definitely it, does care. His whole he... relationship with Skara yeah. shows... shows that side of him and and Cassandra when they find Cassandra on the alien planet yeah oh that was that was so sad <laughs> that, well, well not that sad but because it had a nice ending but I mean it's, that was a very emotional episode it was the bit where, where she's going we all felt like Carter her. when she was going back in the lift yeah, and she was punching definitely. the wall we all we, want, we all wanted to do that when we were watching that part sometimes like Jack will know when there's mm. nothing they can do for a certain uh, people or something like that and just we just have to leave, basically. And then Daniel just won't. Even though, logically, there's not much they can do, Daniel will want to stay and try anyway against all the odds. And, and maybe even try and share the consequences with those people yeah, at times. Yeah, that's when it, yeah. Uh, even if he knows there's nothing they can do, he just doesn't want to leave them on their own to face that and suffer that. He wants to be there with them. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the, the and, very fact he stayed on Abydos. Yeah, <laughs> that's and Jack that. has to pull him... <laughs> Up through the wormhole sometimes yeah. to drag him through to save Daniel's own life. 
I was thinking about the one with the uh, terraforming machine that's mm. going towards a village of people, and it's got that automated like AI mm. on it. it. Doesn't really understand, or it, it just has to terraform it for the um, unborn lives that are on that that mm. machine. And yeah, that's a quite a good Daniel one, I thought, because he does actually beam up to it to try and have one last chance to reason with this guy, even though he knows that. Jack and Sam are going to blow it up in a few minutes, <laughs> and he, yeah, he, very much he would he would risk his own life to try and do what is right, and I think that's that's a great part of it. It's not just the the knowledge and everything. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we were mainly going to talk about O'Neill, but it's just I think the the rest of the team is we're not kind of dismissing the rest of the team because no. they are such great we, characters. We, we do but... love the whole SG one, and uh, yeah. I mean, for me, when I was watching it first time round, it was hard. To it was hard to pick out a favourite character because mm. I just loved them all probably equally for, yeah. for different reasons. I say, uh, when you look at Daniel Jackson, he was like the like the heart and soul of of, of the team, the emotional yeah. side, the EQ of side. Him that the whole project got started anyway. Yeah, and I must say that was a cast, amazing casting choice to get Michael Shanks <laughs> to be Dave, to James be, Spader. because <laughs> yeah, James Spader is, was brilliant as Daniel Jackson in mm. the. Um, in the original Stargate, oh. the film, and I mean that guy is an absolutely fantastic actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've ever watched The Blacklist, he really does carry that show. I loved. Um, I liked him in The Office when he was there as the evil boss. He yeah. <laughs> played mind games with them all. And that was but, a completely different character again. He's a great character and a great orator as well, and that comes mm. through in the particularly in The Blacklist. Um, but I'm, I was really pleased that when they did SG One, they didn't just get a, a guy that looked just like him no. but they got a guy that could act as well I mean when I first saw got the trailers could be a Daniel yeah when I first saw the trailers for SG-1 I actually thought James Spader was in it Michael Shanks did a, such a good job yeah yeah um, it wasn't until I actually saw the casting list when the show started that well he did was... a lot of sneezing in the first season <laughs> <laughs> that helps and uh, as I say I mean Richard Dean it's kind of funny as well because James is here a lot of friends of mine watched the show um, when it was first on, and for different reasons, you know, some of them really loved sci-fi, some of them really loved Richard Dean Anderson. So, <laughs> yeah, I knew some people um, that really liked MacGyver before mm. then. It's not really something that I'd really seen, but and that seemed to bring a lot of fans into the show. And it's I get that Carter made a reference to it in the first episode. Yeah, he said we, they MacGyver, MacGyver the, yeah, the yeah, HD system. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I mean, and then you had my mum who just was in love with Tilk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Yeah. So yeah, hi mum, and Shall yeah, it was, a... one. <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a great series, and uh, you know we we thought we'd talk about in particular some of O'Neill's funnier moments and alternative ways to use the Stargate. So uh, and it overlaps a little bit, especially yeah. in the one that you were watching today. Like for example, there was times when uh, after the pilot episode when uh, Tilk saved. SG one and they, he brought Tilk Jackson and the others brought Tilk home with him. Yeah. And uh, Tilk's being questioned by Mayborn, and uh, O'Neill Is just Mayborn couldn't. In the first episode? Not Mayborn, sorry, Samuels, Major Samuels. Samuels. Right, yeah. And uh, and O'Neill comes through permission to barge in, sir. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I like that. I just love how irreverent he is to, or you know, authority. I mean, in a, in a later ep- episode, um, I think it's the one again regarding another episode regarding Tilk when the alien bugs transforming his DNA, oh, yeah. and uh, Mayborn wants to take him away, and 
is in the office. Well, O'Neill, Mayborn, and Hammond are in the office, and mm. O'Neill turns to Hammond and just says, um, "Permission to beat the crap out of this man, sir." <laughs> just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He often uh, he's always threatening to shoot Mayborn into. Yeah, it's well, pretty good. Oh, I'm not going to hit you. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, definitely doesn't like him. No, uh, Mayborn was another character with an interesting um, story arc and progression in that show, but he, what I think. O'Neill's finest moments for me aren't actually when he's on different planets to the mm. Stargate. It's usually when he's on Earth interacting with other people, particularly, as yeah. I say, some of his interactions with Samuels, um, later Mayborn, who basically takes over the role from Samuels, and yeah. Senator Kinsey, some of the... Um, like. But when he's Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some of these other, <laughs> other, other moments there. Um, I mean, in the actual confines of the SGC, some of his conversations with Hammond are just priceless. Yeah, I, I was thinking the other day about um, some of my favourite comments by him, and I like it when Daniel had just come back from the dead the first time. And... We have to clarify which time with Daniel as well. You know, <laughs> in most series, you wouldn't have to clarify which time someone comes back from the dead. But... Yeah, it's um, when he... When he had been ascended, then he tried to kill Anubis and they'd sent him back with no memory. Mm. So basically, that was the main thing. He They'd found him and brought him back from the planet where he was sent back. And when they come back into the SGC, uh, Hammond welcomes him back. And then he said, you really have no idea who I am? And Daniel says, no. And then Jack says, I don't have any idea either, sir. <laughs> no, he says, I don't either, sir. He, he looks so happy when he says it. <laughs> and it's just, it's just funny. Uh, I like that um, that O'Neill one. And um, yeah, there's just so many times, like you said, where he's just kind of irreverent. And I like the amount of times when he says, got nothing. <laughs> that tends to be his catchphrase, really. <laughs> I liked uh, some of his bad example moments. Yeah, like in uh, Window of Opportunity, when they're in, stuck in the time loop. Yeah, and uh, he's trying to get everyone to believe. There's a lot of good stuff in the, that, that one. That is probably one, probably my favourite episode for those sort of comments. Um, but yeah, they're in the time loop and they're trying to get the other members to be- believe that that's what's happening because it's only O'Neill and Tilt that's going through it, mm. and. He's, talk, he's talking to Hammond and Carter. He's like, oh, if it was just me, I could believe it. But come on, is this the face of a crazy man? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, bad example. Yeah. <laughs> the camera just cuts to Tilk looking like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bad, bad example. Crazy man. You know. Yeah, so that's a, the time loop one. Um, of opportunity, yeah. And isn't that where it also ends up that... So Daniel's talking to him and he's eating his fruit leaves yeah. at the start of each one. He wasn't listening the first That's time. That's just how I feel about it. What, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. And then, um, but then it turns out that Tilk, every time it loops, he's getting a door opened in his face, <laughs> and then he just like slams it on the guy. Doesn't he? <laughs> I like the fact that later on, when uh, I can't remember if it was talking to Tilk or or Carter actually, but uh, O'Neill was saying about. You know that's where he loops into. Mm-hmm. It's like you know the worst thing. I wasn't paying attention the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. And yeah. I, I like the way they they were actually learning as well. I mean, we were talking. Well, what we said before, how he just kind of seems to refuse to to learn things like on principle mm. almost. Like he wants to uh, just kind of let Carter handle that side of it and Daniel handle the language side. But um, in that one, 
Daniel actually just teaches them loads, doesn't he? And they, they, the only way they can retain the knowledge is like in their head. But I love the way they're just kind of messing around like naughty kids are in a well, school and just spinning around on their chairs. Right <laughs> at the start of that episode, he was asking Carter questions, wasn't he? Because he was like, yeah. why is it called a wormhole? What? Where does the worm come in? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was a bit more interested in it. Yeah, um, but the there's one... also a bit in that where he's being they're being examined by Doctor Fraser, yeah. and O'Neill's there going, "What in my eye could possibly explain <laughs> this?" But that, that's after there's been so many scenes where Doctor Fraser's just looking in his eye into it. Cause, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty good. I love the way that you see um, Jackson taking the mick out of O'Neill as well. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's a few times where. He just goes, Daniel. He goes, Jack. <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> just kind of, yeah. I, I like the way those two get on because they're so different. Mm. But they do get on and it's nice. I just fancied uh, earlier today watching Window of Opportunity because it always makes me laugh a lot. And yeah. um, there was a scene in there where they're, one of the episodes where they're having a briefing. Yeah. Um, and they've already been through that meeting because it's the one one of their earlier times. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and he starts talking about like the corona, the son's corona, yeah, and yeah, as evidence that you know they've already had the briefing. And Carter says, "Oh, you know," he says to them, "Well, how would I have known that if you know if we hadn't already had the meeting?" And Carter says, "Oh, maybe you know, I don't know, maybe he read it in my report." <laughs> and, <laughs> and, Jack- and Jackson says, "Maybe he read it in your report." Yeah, <laughs> and just pulls a face. Because <laughs> I've been watching the ones when. Um... When he's the general, and there's oh, a bit yeah. where he kind of, they're a bit worried about Carter because she's been a bit kind mm. of quiet, and it's the one where she's kind of worrying about Pete a bit, and she's kind of up late, and Jack kind of comes up to her and says, Carter, I can't believe these words are going to come out of my mouth, but I need that report. Yeah. <laughs> like that. And then after they've been talking for a while, he, he just kind of says, Carter, I was just joking. I don't really need the report. <laughs> he wasn't that that read seems it more anyway. like him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but one of, one of the more recent ones that I really like. This is the, one of the, f- the last few when he was a colonel, and I think it was a, a, a last little, uh, hmm. last little O'Neill moment was when he was trying to do that crossword because he and Carter had this bet that he hmm. couldn't like finish oh, yeah. this crossword, and they had this really important meeting they had to be at. Um, because Anubis was going to attack Earth and stuff, but Jack was outside in his truck finishing the crossword so he could like give it to Carter, and he'd already phoned Daniel mm. in the morning to get some help with it. And then when he gave it to Carter, she was—I can't remember which element was it was. I think it was beryllium. I'll have to look up the thing. But she says like for the, ask you the atomic oh, weight yeah. of it, and it says the answer's ten. You wrote fat. That—that <laughs> like, that is so Jack. <laughs> And, you know, there is, I think in a way, there's an element of Jack being the everyman in that show. Because, yeah, I say, I Carter's wish. got... I wish, like, I, was, <laughs> yeah, I wish I was only... But yeah. Carter has got the intellect because she's, you know, an experimental astrophysicist. Yeah. Daniel's the archaeologist, the linguist. I mean, they're the both scientists, but in yeah, very different, different fields. Different fields. Yeah. Um, obviously, Teal'c is there, he's... He's obviously not got a great knowledge of Earth culture, uh, but he knows so much about the Jafar, the Goold system laws. He knows a lot about funny you know, films, though, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas O'Neill is kind of like 
us in that situation. He's, he kind of like represents the viewer. He's asking the questions that we want to ask, like, mm. what does this mean? You know, what's the bottom line here? Shooting um, aliens we want to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. What about all the girls he keeps meeting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's you know, that. It's not it's, quite cut. He's had some but... quite funny, uh, probably as much as uh, as Jackson. Jackson seems to have a girl on every planet at times. But... I like, like when O'Neill points it out. It's like, <laughs> like Daniel, you dog. Keep <laughs> yeah. yourself here and have a girl on every planet. That was when he was turned into a Neanderthal, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that was cool. Shortly before he ended up uh, agreeing to marry the queen of a, another planet. You know, he's just, he does seem to yeah. get a lot of girls, does does Daniel. Hathor. Yeah. Oh, that was that was a funny scene, wasn't it? When... Most that DNA will be mine. <laughs> Ew. One thing I have to mention about O'Neill is also the um, the the pond with no fish. Yeah, <laughs> like he's taken them to. Ah, but there it does turn out to be a fish at one point. <laughs> Pesky <laughs> fish. Because <laughs> he's there with Carter, and you see he's got he's reeling his line in, and then all of a sudden this fish jumps out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I thought you said this pond had no fish. He goes, eh, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's just some really great stuff. I found which talk hated the fishing as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's nice that they turned up. The last one I watched, um, they all, well, no, the last book one, um, they were all at the little fishing pond, and it's, it's just nice to have them all kind of hanging out, mm. doing stuff that the others of them hate, but Jack likes for some reason. It's just relaxing. <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to watch a, a TV show that's got some really good, different co- topics, because, I mean, even though even in series one, there were so many different themes coming through that series. Mm. Um it's got good internal harmony. That's what mm. I like about Stargate. I mean, if they come up with an innovation in one episode, they don't tend to forget it in another no. one. It kind of carries over. They are trying to find new technology mm. to be able to use to fight the Gould. Um, you just there's a few things you have to kind of get over earlier on, like the fact that the everybody speaks English, stuff like that. Ah. But and, I'll come back I, know, to that in a I know there'll be ridiculous things where people can say why it works, but it's just a thing in the program, mm. and you forget after a while, and you, you don't, don't mind so much. Well, yeah, it, 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 well, there are there were different theories as to why that that happened. Yeah, but they're all stupid. I've read a few of them. Well, I, I'm, I'll come to come to that thing. One uh, used to be that just the fact that you couldn't have Daniel learning a new alien language every episode. That's it would obviously just slow down. why. That's obviously why. Because it's forty-five minutes in yeah. adventure. Um, but also, the show's producer said that um, when you could travel through the Stargate, obviously you, your molecules are, are um, dismantled, aren't they? And then, much like the transporter system in Star Trek, yeah, you're you disassembled dead. and then you reassembled a new on another person planet. Gets <laughs> yeah. Um, but the Stargate system, when it. you're reassembled, it incorporates uh, tiny molecular nanites into your bloodstream, which act as uh, like a translator as you go through to that planet. If you want that to be it, say it in the program. Yeah, it was never really said in the program. Um, That's because he made it up off the cuff <laughs> to try and explain away the very logical uh, production reasons. Mm. Why they didn't have different. It yeah, never, it never, it never bothered me to be honest, because it, it sort of. Um... It bothers you on the first, uh, third episode. That's the point where you realise. Hang on a minute, everybody's speaking English for mm. me anyway, because in the first episode people were speaking Gould as well, yeah, and it wasn't quite so obvious. But the, th- I think it's on the third one. There's all the Mongolians mm. 
who tried to like That's steal where Carter. I first thought about it, it, why it, the Mongolians speaking English. It kind of slaps you in the face on that episode. <laughs> yeah. But then after a few more episodes, you are just kind of into the story. And like I say, the internal harmony is what's more important. Mm. I used to think, because they had the iris, didn't they? That yeah. closed over the Stargate. And obviously, as the unstable vortex was coming rushing out towards people from the yeah. gate it just evaporated everything in it why doesn't that just go straight through the iris yeah it's because so, um it's so near to the event horizon isn't it well i just thought it yeah i also thought that it was probably because it was a production decision but <laughs> yeah no it, yeah I, I used to kind of think that kind of thing as well but just carter's explanation of it being so close to the event horizon that nothing can kind of has chance to form has chance to form and i thought that would that would apply to the thing as well, mm. whatever it is, that blast that comes out of it. I think that's quite a nice aspect of it because you could have it, the gate just kind of forming. Yeah. But I like the way they always have that blast coming yeah. out. And that's that actually, cool. actually quite important in later episodes as well, isn't it? it that, is. that happens. Yeah. And you kind of wonder how much of that was pre planned or if that was just, you it know, just an effect an in effect the film, in I the think. Film, and but it I'm just looks cool. It. It, yeah. it always just looks cool, though, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And the most recent one I watched, which I meant to mention earlier because I watched it yesterday, and it is one that I've always remembered. It's when he, it turned out he'd been having visions of the life of a barber for years. This barber had been having oh, visions yeah. of O'Neill's life, and then it turns out, so well, you must have been having visions of this guy's life as well, and it turned out he had, and he just hadn't mentioned it to anybody. For like seven years or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, like that. That, 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 was, that was good. And I've always remembered that as well, because when you watch the series after that, and you watch it from the first series, you, you're kind of thinking, like, this has already started at this point. <laughs> I just think that in his spare time, and he was having these flashbacks, well, not flashbacks, just these visions of this guy's very ordinary life. And as he said in season eight, he found it relaxing. So I think, you know, if nice. you are being shot at by alien aggressors on a weekly basis and saving the earth frequently, and you're, you're watching one of your best friends constantly die and come back to life, <laughs> sometimes you're going to want something that's just nice, simple and relaxing. And having uh, visions of a guy cutting hair is probably what helped keep him so grounded over all those years. The other thing we were going to talk about, alternative uses for a Stargate. Yeah, innovative. Innovative. The thing I thought about was on that Mitchell and Webb sketch where there's like it's on the Mitchell and Webb sound hmm. where there's like an office and they've got their own Stargate and they keep like they keep being these announcements about what not to use the Stargate for, yeah. like for throwing your rubbish through it and everything and not bullying the aliens on the other side, <laughs> not urinating into the Stargate, things, things like that. But, but I just kind of thought that um, using it to get rid of rubbish. I mean, mm. if you knew it was opening out onto, like, near the surface of a star or something like that, well, this is you could it. dump all of Earth's rubbish into it, and you'd know it was going somewhere where it just get incinerated. I mean, I was thinking, because you've, it's, it's, it was quite interesting, actually, at the time. In one of the later episodes, you see one of the shuttles go through a gate and mm. come out in space and there's, yeah. they've got like a, a Stargate in space but that happens ships. all the time on, yeah. on Atlantis doesn't it and yeah. you have the puddle jumpers that just go through and they have to check whether the gate is a land one or an orbit one before yeah. they go through it don't they? and that was that was something that was more uh, it was a regular thing on Atlantis but it only ever happened like very very rarely mm. in Stargate SG-1 and I thought if you had a, a Stargate that opened up near a sun 
Yeah. That you could just use it to dispose of you, your waste and everything. Yeah. Um, or have a landfill planet. <laughs> just, keep, just when yeah. it finally gets uh, so chock a block that it gets near, it starts to collapse near the Stargate. Every time the Stargate punches, it opens up new space for more rubbish. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. And of course, playing golf. Yeah, which O'Neill and Tilk did on the episode that you just watched. Yeah, yeah and he got shafted at didn't he? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then I he shouts back at Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, is, that, is, that is one of my favourite episodes. But yeah, there's other things as well. Um, friend friend of mine, Bryony, made the point. You could send through people that were annoying. You could do. People yeah. that were being naughty in thy sight. Which they did do in Stargate sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> in the... Well, they let Mayborn stay through the gate, didn't they? Even though mm. he kind of snuck through or something. And Anubis, you know, when he kind of turned up as like a weird entity that was jumping mm. between different bodies, then they let him go through the Stargate, but he was on that frozen world. And he just froze solid <laughs> on the other side. I was thinking it would be great for talent shows. So, for example, I mean, you get like shows like The X Factor and Pop Idol, and you see people going on there convinced they can sing, and all their friends and family are like, oh, yeah, you, you know, you're a great singer, you know, believe in yourself, go on this show and, and compete. I think people would be a lot more hesitant to, you know, encourage people to sing if the, if the people that failed were being sent through to a replicator planet. Yeah, well, that's just an execution. I mean, you can't. You could just have a firing it's, squad. It's not technically an execution, because, because you're, you're not killing them. It. You're just put, sending them to another planet. Yeah, we could. Uh, okay. So you th- you're like the Starks <laughs> because you're not swinging the sword. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think it's. Um, it would be interesting, wouldn't it? You could I'd say, rather right. not use it to kill people. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Well, you could send them through to be, you know, hosts for the, for the. Yeah, for, for the, the Tokra or oh, for the gold. For the Tokra. Yeah, I really like the Tokra. I do like the Tokra. Yeah, um, Jack hates them. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of possibilities with a Stargate. I think one of the problems with it is that it is only one way. And yeah. that is, I think it's good that the Stargate has that limitation because otherwise there'd be all kinds of crazy uses for it, wouldn't there? Mm. I mean, you could just... You imagine playing like around. tennis or something through the Stargate. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be <laughs> Through a two-way cool. Stargate. Yeah. Um, obviously, communication's pretty good because mm. it goes two ways, doesn't mm. it? Electromagnetism can go it go through it two ways. So, you could use it to like, even if you weren't going through it, use it to communicate with people on the other side of the world or, or the universe as well. I think the other limitation of it is that you can only have, basically have one per planet, can't you? Because it kind of goes to the nearest one. Yeah. I know Earth's got two, but if you try to dial the other one, you get the busy signal, as they yeah. call it. So you have to think of like going somewhere far enough away, mm. don't you? So that you can actually use the gate. Um, but I think there has been some innovative uses of it in the program itself. Like when Carter basically used it to blow up a sun by like <laughs> dropping an open gate into the corona, into the mantle, the, uh, into the sun. And, and it drew the energy it through. Drew, well, it drew enough matter in <laughs> that it kind of changed the Schwarzschild radius and kind of collapsed it and make it uh, make it kind of uh, supernova, I think it did. So I thought that was quite in- innovative in one way. There's not many everyday uses you can have for it. It's too thought, big and unwieldy. I thought it was what was interesting was because there was an episode in, I think it was series two, no, series one with the prison world. Yeah, where they were feeding people through it. They were feeding people through it, so you could you could use it as a food delivery system. 
Yeah, you could. Imagine, imagine if you could like miniaturize the Stargate technology so it could be within a planet, and everyone had one in their house. Yeah. Deliveries would be instantaneous. You could order yeah. a pizza and it'd come f- flying through a, a wormhole. Yeah, Soup would that's be a problem. Mm. Well, it wasn't a problem for the guys. Just had the trough. No, you had the trough and it came down. Which is um, a bit weird because I would. You could have yeah. inescapable prisons, couldn't you? You could. Yeah, I mean, it didn't work so well for them guys, but because... You just don't no send a genius through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't send that uh, destroyer of worlds through there. <laughs> um, that did give me another idea about disposing of things you don't want. Rather than sending it somewhere else, you just dial it up and throw whatever you don't like into the big <laughs> splash that comes out, because that does completely destroy the thing, doesn't yeah. it? I think some radiation comes off, but... It doesn't seem to be harmful, does it? Because well, not not if you're not in the splash. If you're in the splash, it's pretty harmful. Well, I just mean to be around. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Because no one was getting Stargate sickness. Were they? Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, the amount of times when loads of Jafar or somebody slams into the iris, and obviously they're gone. Yeah. And matter had to go somewhere. <laughs> I mean, it came through. Uh, radiation comes off because you can scan the radiation mm. that comes off the iris. But obviously it's not harmful, because mm. otherwise they, they would all be ill <laughs> the amount of times that's happened. So, yeah. I think you could use... The main in- innovative use, I think, is to destroy things of the stockade. <laughs> yeah, Cleanly. it does have brilliant destructive capabilities. Yeah. But I think the ordinary use of the stockade is the best, just going between different worlds. Mm. And the fact that they were set up by the ancients and they're all put on planets with an atmosphere and ones Mm. where humans can survive, for the most part. Because even the ones that they go through that aren't actually inhabitable were habitable when the Stargate system was originally put in there. It's just the natural planets. Out of the billions of planets that Mm. there are, they they all lead to ones that you can actually survive on. Mm. So yeah, and I love all the worlds that they go to. Mm. And they're so often in a beautiful forest, aren't they? And it'd be nice just to be able to have your own Stargate and just go to different places like that for a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> like whenever you feel like, like I'm off to P three X one eight one or whatever. I quite liked it as well when the Russians got the gate. What they had that water world on the other side with the energy coming out of it. That was pretty cool. Was, yeah, I like that. Yeah. That was um. Cool. But yeah, as I was saying, you know, there are. Definitely. I mean, it's quite interesting the way they explored some of those innovative uses in the. In I there. think there was more innovative uses in Atlantis when I think about the stuff McKay did with it, like um, making that bridge between mm. galaxies. So basically, just dropping gates in between the Milky Way and the Pegasus mm. galaxy. And then you go through the buffer. You kind of walk through one gate and then you just kind of forward to the buffer of each one until you yeah. get to Earth and just come out of the gate. <laughs> that was a really cool idea. And, you know, there are... there are. I mean, I do think that when you look at the gate, it's a beautiful thing to look at as well with the different symbols, the chevrons, I mean, they, they, they the keep calling it an ancient puddle. artefact, don't they? Mm. Like, it does look like that. Mm. Yeah. So, please, if, you, if you're if you a fan of the show, drop us uh, some comments below and let us know... Yeah. Um, what you, some of your favourite O'Neill moments There's are. so many more, isn't there? Stay meddlesome. Mm-hmm. Now it's time to talk about books with the Meddlesome Meeples. Welcome to this episode of Tome Talk, where Richard is going to be talk, talking to us about Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Yep, and that's not to be confused with Hyperion by Keats, which is 
quite heavily referenced in this. Right. <laughs> so it's not just that we've got the same title. So Hyperion refers to a planet, mm-hmm. and it's one that's right outside of the galactic civilization. So if you imagine like Tatooine, that kind yeah. of a place. So in this universe that Dan Simmons has created, it's incredibly in depth and he's obviously put a lot of thought into like how the government works and everything there. They have got what they call a world web. And that is mostly controlled by these things called forecasters, mm-hmm. which I mean, we're going to be talking about Stargates a bit later. They're a little bit like that, but not not quite. So we're going with the theme. Yeah, yeah, we are kind of. But with the planet Hyperion, that's not connected to this world web. If you want to get there, you have to go on a ship that uses a Hawking drive. And a you... Hawking drive? Yep, that's what they call it. And you incur... In honour of the man. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's already Hawking radiation, isn't there? That mm. hasn't really been proved yet. So I don't know how this Hawking drive would work, but... Um, mm. You incur a time debt when you go. You have to go into stasis. So you have to basically spend months getting to Hyperion. And this book is about seven people who are making the journey to Hyperion to go on a pilgrimage. And it's a pilgrimage to these things called the Time Tombs, which have recently started to open on Hyperion. And there is a creature that comes from the time tombs called the Shrike. And that has been there for hundreds of years. It's horrible. <laughs> it is basically... I can't remember how tall I said it was. It might be like three metres tall. Um, and it looks like a metal person with four arms and spikes all over it. And like a lot of the time, monsters tend to... I think they have some kind of biological traits mm. that are quite scary. The Shrike seems to be based on physics. Okay. It has like some kind of powers over time. Mm. And I thought when I was reading it and really seeing the kind of things the Shrike could do, I was imagining it being in one of our games, oh. <laughs> like our cooperative ones. And I, I just thought, well, if the Shrike was one of the miniatures that we had, we'd like set up all the game only to find out that it killed us all before we even took the box off the shelf (laughs) because that is the kind of thing you're dealing with with this thing um basically it has infinite time to be able to do things because it can have control over time and like i say it is mysterious um they don't know where this shrike has come from um and the people are actually going on a pilgrimage to the time tombs to ask the shrike for something and that might seem really weird, and it so is. So basically, it's like a deadly killer that's giving out free advice and gifts. Yeah, yeah, this is the thing. So these it's people evil been... Santa. You brought a book about evil Santa. <laughs> yeah, he is kind of evil Santa. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, kids. But he is incredibly evil. Now, the idea is, because there is this church of the Shrike, there's lots mm. of themes of religion in this book, which I'm kind of uh, going to get to when I go into the, the characters in a little bit more detail. But... Um, Basically, these people have been allowed to go on this pilgrimage by the Church of the Shrike, Mm -hmm. which has like cathedrals on all the planets in the web. Because ever since humanity has kind of uh, spread out to the stars and they have all these uh, different colonies and different worlds, as soon as they found the Shrike and the time tombs, then a religion did form around it. And that was like 400 years ago. So it's very it's well established. It's interesting that I thought that an advanced society 
would still look to religion. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. That's one of the themes that really does come out in this book because... Because uh, typically when we think about science fiction, we think about futuristic um, races, high intellect. Mm. Religion is very rarely part of it. I mean, there are uh, times where we go to like certain species in Star Trek. Uh, the Klingons yeah. can be quite religious in their own yeah, way, can't they? Can they? Can uh, or spiritual, perhaps, is probably the better way of defining that. But you don't find that so much in the humans, do you? No, the really? human societies seem to have moved away. I mean, the Bajorans um, are probably yeah. the most religious that we could think but of. They're but they're also like, like yeah, they're <laughs> kind of like the least advanced in a lot of ways mm. to the other species. Yeah. It's, but then it tends to be more the alien races and... Okay, again, when we're thinking about Star Trek, sorry, Star, not Star Trek, Stargate, which we're going to be talking about in Tiny People's Big Talk. Yeah, a lot of religion there. A lot of religion in there, mm -hmm. typically in a very negative uh, light, in the sense of yeah, well, the key deceit carried out because you've gods. got yeah, because you've got the Goa'uld who are obviously impersonating mm -hmm. uh, various deities, but then you've also got some of the ones worshipped by the other races who are. In, taking the role of good gods from Earth, aren't they? That yeah, are there yeah. to protect and help and guide people. So it's it's always quite interesting when you, get, to me anyway, when you get like this religious dynamic of a within a futuristic well, species. Well, this is the thing. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got the fall of Hyperion here as well, and it's just um, what is it? It says here is a superb vision of future technology and ancient religions of scientific revelation and timeless mystery. And that really, mm. I like that. I haven't read it's this one nice, yet. Nice expression. Yeah, but that really sums up the first book mm. as well, incredibly well. And it's quite nice when you see like the future technologies merged with the beliefs of the past. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And it's not just religions of the past, although they are in there. Obviously, the Shrike was so baffling mm. when the humans found it that it's it's obvious that a religion would form around it. Now they they they're called the Church of the Shrike, but they don't really like to be called that. They are called the Church of the Final Atonement. And they have this well, idea that sounds nice. I know well <laughs> They sound jolly. But they they're worshipping like what they call the Lord of Pain. Which is why they had another name for the Shrike. They also call uh, it we're the into Warhammer territory now, are we? Yeah, and it, it is that kind of scary as well. Um and so obviously there is that religion, so that's the new one, but two of the characters are quite religious as well, of the seven that are on this pilgrimage. One of them is a Catholic priest, and he has had to deal with um, his fears of the church kind of collapsing. Um, his like, church, you mean? The Catholic his church, church, the Catholic, yeah, because obviously like you were saying, as humankind becomes more advanced and gone to different worlds, um, religion becomes less relevant and it's not those kind of worries and that and another character is jewish and he hasn't been all that religious for most of his life but he he starts getting these visions of well, i don't want to this this happens near the beginning of his tale but so it's not really a, a spoiler but he has this vision of the shrike mm. telling him to bring his daughter to hyperion to offer her as a burnt offering like it's similar to abraham you mm. know so he he starts really thinking about religion loads <laughs> at that point and that's the as kind, you would as you would that is the kind of rubbish that this shrike gets up to <laughs> it, it is a, a terrifying not just in a physical way but it will mess with people psychologically as well <laughs> and yeah basically it's a lot like well i know i know it's very obvious that dan simmons wrote this as being a sci-fi Canterbury Tales mm. basically so that on this pilgrimage and on the way they are telling their stories about how they 
like the reasons why they are personally going on this pilgrimage. Basically, out of all the applicants in the galaxy, they are the seven people that have been picked by the Church of the Shrike to go, be able to go on this uh, this journey. Um, they can't land. Do they right next travel to it. together then? Are they, are they, is, or is it charting like separate? Uh, no, no, it's when they are together. I mean, they meet on this first day and mm. they're like, oh, so we're the seven that have been picked. Mm. So it has to be a prime number, apparently. So um, they are just kind of trying to decide how they're going to get along while they make this journey of a few days. And they have a vote about whether or not they should tell their stories. And a few of them kind of get voted out. They um, It ends up with them being, they are going to tell the stories. And then they kind of draw lots for the numbers. Mm. So and it ends up being Father Hoyt, um, the Catholic priest who goes first, and his story is pretty horrifying. It is a basically a horror story, and I mean I read this when I was quite a bit younger, mm. and it was almost too much for me that one. It was um, very much about it's a very Catholic story about mm. like faith and pain and. Um, and would that you say one... that when you say it's a very Catholic story, would you think that um, listeners who maybe aren't interested in because obviously religion's quite a divisive subject yeah you know uh, some people won't be interested in religion would you say that if you were very secularly minded that you would still enjoy this book for the story that it's telling oh definitely yeah because it's only two well that's the only one out of the there's supposed to be seven stories really but there ends up being only six just for circumstances so there's basically this is like six novellas mm. rather than and then they're kind of put together with into mm. one novel with a framing device. So, um, yeah, it's only one out of those. Yeah, and it is a fascinating story. That first one. I'm just I'm just saying that it is. Um, it's just the themes are very much. Um, they they just seem very Catholic. I suppose to, to that's, that's, gonna, that's to be I expected think. though. If he's writing, if one of the characters is a, a catholic priest that that is yeah. going to come through in his story yeah that's it I'm just, you know? yeah basically just the the themes you have to really try and think of a way to explain it without kind of mm. giving away any spoilers but yeah. um yeah and that one is actually written in the first person now they do alternate so that one's on the first person the next one is um general Kassad. i'm thinking about it actually he's a muslim i think or was one of a Muslim background, but he's not religious as well, so that doesn't really come through. Mm. Um, not so much. His story is one of like intergalactic warfare, not intergalactic, interstellar warfare, yeah. and his one is told in the third person, and I think that works really well because his one's like more like an action adventure. Mm. It's still pretty scary, <laughs> not as bad as Father Hoyt's one, but um, and that one is brilliant. Um, and when you say interstellar, are these characters all from Earth, or are they from various Earth colonies? Would you say most various Earth colonies? There's only one character that can claim to be from Earth. The other characters don't really believe him because mm. um, apparently Earth has been dead for hundreds of years. But okay, that was probably something I should have known before we. <laughs> well, it comes out so yeah, I slightly. I haven't in... researched this book at all. I'm just relying purely on on Richard's well, storytelling. Yeah, <laughs> But, um, I mean, there's a reason why I didn't particularly mention that, and that's because it's only ever kind of alluded to a little bit in the book. Right. So that's the main thing. Um, yeah, they're mostly from all over the place. Um, obviously, during the time of the book, they're all on Hyperion, mm. making this journey, but their stories go all over the galaxy. And um, 
Yeah, so the first one was about the priest. The second one, there is... Um, it's about the soldier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in general. And then the other ones... I don't want to just kind of list them, but one of them is like a murder mystery. Uh, one of them, the story of uh, Sol Weintraub, the um, the Jewish man who's a lecturer at a university. That one is incredibly sad. <laughs> and it's almost too sad, that one. It's, it's mostly about his daughter. Mm. And you, um, it's just that these different stories te- seem to be different genres. Mm. So that's why I think this is such a fascinating book. Because if one of the stories doesn't particularly appeal to you, and some of them I did find a little bit hard to get through, mm. because they are incredibly um, detailed, and it's a long book, and these stories are substantial. Mm. And they do stick with just the one story, just for a while. And then, it's not like a lot of novels tend to jump around between yeah. scenes, don't they? Whereas this one, it sticks with one, and then that's done. And then the next person starts telling their stories. Um, yeah, it's that, kind of like uh, several books in one, really. And yeah, it is. Genres. So, that, in a way, that's interesting because that means there's probably going to be something there for everybody. There is, yeah, and it is worth getting through it all because you do learn a little bit more about the Shrike each mm. time. Because every one of them, they have a reason for going to this planet, and it's hard to imagine why anybody would go on this mm. pilgrimage because basically the mythology is the Shrike will grant one of them a, a wish and he'll kill the others <laughs> kill all the others Okay. and um, he has apparently this metal tree that he spikes people on and the time tombs are travelling backwards through time so basically it's already happened uh, yeah it just hasn't happened for them yet so it's basically their fate is already sealed mm. and it is yeah, it's just incredibly interesting, but you're never going to really understand what this creature is, how it does what it does, what the time tombs are, things like that. You just have to accept that. Mm. But through the stories, you do learn a little bit more about the universe that they are all in and the characters they are. I was surprised, actually, that the poet's tale, mm. I thought that was the most interesting one. That was like an odyssey. Mm. Like He led such a long life. Partly because he spent so long travelling around in stasis. So he like saw hundreds of years of history because when he, when he thaws out, uh, loads of things have changed. But um, yeah, he le- lived an incredibly um, diverse life. I mean, sometimes he just was completely sold out and he, um, he was just writing these trashy novels. And, like, it, and he had this really amazing house that had loads of farcasters. Um, so he had like this 38-room house and mm. each, each room was on a different planet. And it was basically you could go between portals to the different rooms. I thought, I thought that was an amazing idea. I, I love the idea of that. I am looking forward to reading The Fall of Hyperion, which I have here. Um, I think this picture on the front might be the Shrike. There was a very spiky okay. head on there. And um, yeah, the way this one went, it was mostly the pilgrimage. And I'll just be interested to see where this um, picks up. I think there is a third one that might be called Endymion. Still heavily Keats. Um, influence. So on on the planet Hyperion, the, the main city there is called Keats mm. because um, there was a colony of artists that all went there. And um, yeah, it's um, oh, there's so much to talk about this book. But mostly, just just an, as an overview, mm. it's told in several different voices because it's from several different characters' points of view. It's about a very con- 
comprehensible and well thought out uh, galactic system and galactic government and the characters are interesting and uh, very uh, diverse they don't get on with each other very well like on their pilgrimage which yeah. is only to be expected well they know that the others are all going to die possibly yeah. they're, they're hoping to be the one that survives and everyone else dies so yeah that's it that's not going to make for good relationships is it yeah not really <laughs> with it being told in so many different voices i think he's done a real good job of um making the characters a bit more three-dimensional hmm. because it's not just that there's mainly one main character and then the other characters are kind of seen through that person's eyes. So it's going to kind of make you care about all these characters. And yeah, yeah, and mm. it is amazing once you've read the, the tale of a few of them, when it gets to kind of between tales later on and you hear that character kind of make a comment about somebody else's tale and mm. stuff, you feel like you really know that character really mm. well and it's interesting to see how they react to each one. Like, like they thought their tale was harrowing and then they hear the tale of another person and they like come out in sympathy <laughs> to them because <laughs> of what's been done to them as well so yeah I think this is an incredibly interesting book um, just for many different reasons uh, which I, I hope I've managed to um, explain all of them I'm going to yeah I'm going to be interested to read The Fall of Hyperion obviously that is also an epic it seems I mean that one like I say I think there's Endymion as well so we're looking forward to going through that um, but I think next I'll probably read something a little bit lighter <laughs> <laughs> we've gone through quite a lot of dystopian novels and a lot of quite actually. tragic novels lately yeah. I think I, I express this on behalf of myself and of course all of our viewers and listeners mm -hmm. we are worried about you so. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I've been getting emails <laughs> well it's difficult to yeah is Richard okay? Yeah. <laughs> That's what people want to know. Mm. Is Richard okay? Well, the thing is, it's nice to know that we don't have to live in these worlds. Yeah. And it makes you appreciate what you have a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my next one, I'm not sure if it's dystopian or not. It's um, I've got one by Philip K. Dick, which I haven't read before. Um, I've read his um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, mm -hmm. which obviously is Blade Runner. But... Um, I haven't read this particular one, which is called Counterclock World. Yeah. And I thought that just seemed like an interesting idea. I think it's about different realities. So, um, yeah, that's very much like the Ursula Le Guin one that I read before and I really enjoyed. Lathe of Heaven. Yeah, Lathe of Heaven. That wasn't too dystopian. I mean, that, that was no. about, about dreams and things. So, yeah, hopefully not quite as depressing next time. But, you know, um, it's just... A lot of these stories are going to sound like that. I mean, you're one about the Aztec Empire as well. I mean, that's not exactly, <laughs> not exactly um, optimistic. I <laughs> think so. so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see I mean, where you're coming from. Interesting with that. stories yeah. uh, generally are set in pretty terrible universe. I mean, look at Star Wars with the Empire and things like that. You know. True, <laughs> true. Um, so there we are. So. Uh, I'll be talking about a book on our next episode of Tome Talk. Don't know what it is yet. I don't know what it is yet. And okay. then Richard will be back with his dick book. Why do you have to do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be back talking about Counterclock World in a month. By Philip. Dick. By Philip K. Dick. Yeah. yeah. What does the K stand for? I don't know. It's no. always just been a middle initial. It just a lot of uh, sci-fi writers will have a middle initial. I just think it's interesting that. Ian Banks, when he writes, uh, when he writes sci-fi, has to have an M in the middle of his name. Ian M. <laughs> and the rest of the time, he doesn't. So, yeah. Richard approves.
What about you? Well, that was fun. Let's carry on with the show. The Meeple's Alive! So that's our show. We hope you enjoyed it. Please stop by our Facebook page and say hi. Mm-hmm. That's it. Is that it? <laughs> that. As they say. As they say. <laughs> is all she wrote. Farewell, Quester, and thanks for joining us. If you wish to avoid the wrath of Greyscar and the Black, then subscribe to our show before you depart. Our fortress is located at meddlesomemeeples.com or join our banners by rendezvousing with us at facebook.com forward slash meddlesomemeeples, instagram.com forward slash the meddlesomemeeples, or follow the flight of the mountain bluebird to at Middlesome Meeples. Until next time, Quester, farewell and keep thine axe sharp.